Looking back over the last two months here at UUCF, it stands out to me that quite a few of our worship services recently have been focused on different areas of social justice, from the DREAM Act and marriage equality, to our nation's mass incarceration epidemic and the new Jim Crow, to the debate around torture and the Oscar-nominated film Zero Dark Thirty. Looking forward to March and April, there are also a number of other social justice issues I would like to invite us to explore together, including gun violence, reproductive justice, and climate change. In between, there are non-social justice-related sermons that I plan to preach, but since this morning's sermon is one in a cluster of sermons on social justice, I thought it might be helpful to voice a reminder, though I think I haven't heard much pushback. I haven't heard any too much social justice so far, but uh, I want to maybe voice a reminder that it's not my intention ever to create a sense that there's any sort of UU orthodoxy that you have to commit to regarding various social justice issues that you should or must accept to be a UU. Unitarian Universalism has a strong tradition, both of a free pulpit and free pews. So part of my role is to stretch and challenge you and to help you take a step back and maybe consider some social justice issues and other issues and angles you haven't considered before. But the freedom of the pew ensures that you are by no means ever obligated to agree with me. As you've heard me joke before, wherever there are three UUs discussing any one topic, there are likely to be at least eight opinions. And this dynamic of both pulpit freedom and pew freedom is one of the reasons that we have reserved an hour following our upcoming service on Sunday, March 10th, for a congregational conversation about reducing gun violence. I look forward to hearing from you about your places of agreement, your places of disagreement or tension with the sermon that I will preach that morning. I look forward to hearing your ideas about how we can continue to revise our proposed statement on gun violence as a congregation in a way that we can explore what can we actually come to consensus around potentially. I hope to schedule future sermon talkback times in the future. Perhaps I should mention as well that when I first drafted an outline of a 12-month um, preaching plan from July 2012 through June 2013, the only explicitly social justice-related sermon that I had planned was about climate change for Earth Day in April. But then the citizens of the state of Maryland voted to approve the DREAM Act and marriage equality. The, UU, the UUA began a denomination-wide focus on the racist consequences of mass incarceration, Tragedy struck at Sandy Hook Elementary. Unexpected controversy arose over Catherine Bickelow's film, Zero Dark Thirty, and the UUA selected its next major congregational study action initiative to be reproductive justice. So I'm grateful for the freedom that this pulpit, this congregation, and that Unitarian Universalism allows me and all of us to keep the focus of our worship flexible enough so that we can continue to explore the significant issues of our time as they arise. And even as the study of social problems and systemic injustices can sometimes feel overwhelming, it strikes me that many of the social justice issues that we're exploring here in the first quarter of 2013 are related in some sense to success stories or potential breakthroughs. 
there may still be much work to do in all these areas to achieve full justice for all on these issues, whatever that would even look like. But significant strides have been made or are on the edge of being made in many cases toward creating positive, inclusive social change. In response to my sermon last week about nonviolent alternatives to war, I had some good conversation with some of you after the service about just how realistic or unrealistic or naive is, is such a position. And my first response is, well, we probably should have had a um, congregational conversation about that. Uh, but my next response is that the large-scale success of such movements as those led by Martin Luther King Jr. about civil rights or Mohandas Gandhi for independence, that leads me to think that nonviolence is a far more effective tool for societal transformation than is often appreciated or is thought to be it was this limited thing that worked decades ago instead of seeing how ripe it is for present and future use. If nonviolent activism had even one-tenth of the funding and the personnel that we spend on our military-industrial complex, our whole conception might begin to change about what is possible in the struggle for social justice. As the saying goes, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And there are obvious uses for hammers and for the military in its current form, but we desperately need to add tools such as nonviolent activism to our society's tool belt. My larger point is that when I reflect on social justice issues that we have been and will be exploring here in early 2013, one phrase that keeps coming to mind for me is one that I offered to you earlier today and is the benediction last week, that another world is possible. And I think as we look back over the decades and the centuries to realize we're not even at the 100th anniversary of women voting in the United States of America. Change is possible. Another world is possible. So what I mean, um, what I mean is that a majority of Maryland voters approving the DREAM Act, that gives me hope that another world is possible, a world of greater justice and fairness for all people including immigrants. A majority of Maryland voters approving same-sex marriage equality, that gives me hope that another world is possible, a world of greater justice and fairness for all people, regardless of who they love. Even the horrifying statistics around the prison industrial complex of the unspeakable horror of Newtown make me hopeful that perhaps we're finally reaching a tipping point in which we as a society have had enough and that a critical mass of people will demand another world to become reality. That we don't have to accept the status quo. The most recent statistics I've seen are that 2,218 people have died in the U.S. from gun violence just since Newtown. 2,218. It doesn't have to be this way. There are concrete steps to reduce gun violence, and we'll talk about some of them and which ones have the best chance of becoming law in coming weeks. As St. John said, you may be a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. That's St. John Lennon, of course. Uh, And one of the reasons so many you use and so many other people love John Lennon's Imagine is that the lyrics challenge us to imagine that another world is possible. If you think through that song in your mind, perhaps you can feel some of that inside you, that another world is possible. 
And one of the reasons I wanted to preach about the death penalty this morning is that we seem to be on the edge of making yet again another world possible here in Maryland. As the Washington Post reported this past week, Senator Robert A. Zirkin, who I'd never heard of prior to this from um, Baltimore County, said Wednesday night that he plans to vote in favor of repealing Maryland's death penalty, which means the measure now has a support of a majority of members on a key committee. Repeal legislation has died in recent years in Maryland in the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, which is scheduled to vote Thursday on the latest version of the bill. That, on Wednesday, it was scheduled to vote Thursday uh, by Governor Martin O'Malley. So it's sponsored by the governor. That, so that makes a good chance that he'll probably want to sign it if it passes. A majority vote by the committee would allow the, vote, the bill to move into the full Senate, um, where there appears to be enough votes for passage. Now, without speaking in depth to each of you about your personal experience with violent crime and the death penalty, which I'd be glad to hear to talk to you later if that's something that's that's touched your life. Uh, So you may feel passionately about this issue for any number of reasons, um, one way or the other. Uh, So I have no way of knowing how the possibility, without talking to you, of abolishing the death penalty in Maryland, how that feels to you personally. But speaking for myself personally... My perception of this potential legislative victory in Maryland is strongly affected by the three years that I spent in seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, where 493 men have been executed since 1982 when the state of Texas reinstituted capital punishment. The most recent of those executions was less than 72 hours ago on Thursday, February 21st. For me, having worked for three years in Texas to little avail to raise awareness about the inconsistency, the racism, the poverty, the poverty bias, the expense, and the risks inherent in the death penalty, the possibility of a majority of state senators or legislators voting to abolish the death penalty in the state in which I live feels like another world is possible. And I don't want us to miss the significance of this potential moment that may be part of a growing trend in our nation against the death penalty. Texas, fortunately, is an outlier. Overall, the number of death row inmates executed in the U.S. in 2012 remains unchanged from 2011, 43. Last year, Connecticut up to 17 the number of states to repeal the death penalty, so Maryland could make 18. And only nine states executed death row inmates in 2012, led by Texas, which executed 15 um, by itself. Overall, last year, four states, Texas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, and Arizona, carried out more than three-quarters of all state executions. The year before, 13 states used the death penalty. So back in 2010, I named this earlier, um, retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens reviewed a book by David Garland titled A Peculiar Institution, America's Death Penalty in an Age of Abolition. So meaning on the world stage, there's an age of abolition regarding the death penalty, but we remain aberrant as a nation. Um, In the concluding paragraph of the review, Stevens echoed his former colleague, Justice Byron White, in saying that the death penalty represents the pointless and needless extinction of life with only marginal contributions to any discernible social or public purpose. At the time, I remember thinking that that sums up my view fairly well. The pointless and needless extinction of life with only marginal contributions to any discernible social or public purpose. 
Part of how I arrived at that view was learning about how many people had been saved from wrongful execution. Setting aside the number of people that we may never know who have already died because they were wrongly executed in the distant past, we know that since 1973, 130 death row inmates have been exonerated, largely through the use of DNA evidence. Yet not every state allows death row inmates access to such testing. That's 130 human beings on death row in line to be executed who were exonerated. Some of you may know the story of Michael Morton who was an American citizen wrongly convicted in Texas of murdering his wife. Morton served 25 years in prison until undisputable proof of his innocence led to his release in October 4th of 2011. Now, in Morton's case, highly unusually, especially in Texas, the DA who prosecuted his case, who's now a judge, is himself in the process of perhaps going to jail for 10 years for how bad this was messed up. And that, that... signals or gestures towards part of the problem of why some states don't want to give people access to DNA evidence because it can lead to legal, uh, to malfeasance being uncovered and consequences for those in power. But I think the real turning point for me regarding capital punishment was in college when I first heard stories of people involved with the organization Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation. Story after story spoke of the false hope they had experienced as murder victims' families regarding the death penalty. That after years of waiting through appeals that brought more focus almost every time to the perpetrator and not their victim, not their loved one, the actual day of execution did not, in almost all cases, bring the closure they sought. Because what they discovered they really wanted underneath their very understandable anger and grief was not the death of someone else, it was their loved one back. And waiting for that death had blocked them from doing the grief they needed to do around their, their dead loved one. And the false promise of the death penalty, again, had delayed the grieving process. For many theologians, the false promise of the death penalty is related to a larger phenomenon sometimes known as, known as the myth of redemptive violence. That violence, even the seemingly justifiably fair revenge of an eye for an eye or a life for a life, almost inevitably sows the seeds of future violence in in many complex ways. A classic bumper sticker makes this point succinctly. Why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? But Martin Luther King Jr., in the same quote I shared with you last week, says more eloquently that the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral. Through violence you may murder the lie, uh, the liar but not the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence you may murder the hater, but you don't murder hate. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Now, there are, of course, some murder victims' families who will eagerly and freely tell you that they're deeply grateful for the execution of the perpetrator who killed their loved one. But the testimonies from murder victims' families for reconciliation and similar organizations around the country have convinced me that another world is possible, that it is possible to stumble and grope our way forward to peace and hope, even in the wake of senseless murders. To say more about what I mean, when I spoke a few weeks ago about our nation's epidemic of mass incarceration, I said that we need a shift in our criminal justice system from, the, from one primarily characterized by punitive judgment, that is, by punishment, to restorative 
justice, a focus less on punishment than on rehabilitation, restoring right relationship for all concerned and on repairing the problems that contributed to the crimes being committed in the first place. As an example of what that looks like, the New York Times Magazine ran a feature article back in January on Can Forgiveness Play a Role in Criminal Justice? It tells the story of the parents of Anne Grossmayer, who in 2010, at age 19, was shot and killed by her fiancé, Connor McBride, who was also 19 years old at the time. They had been dating for three years. A fight between them escalated from hurtful words to murder, when Connor reached for a shotgun that was kept in the house. Now, this, of course, gets to the issue of how much fights change when a gun enters the picture, but we'll save that for next month. In working through their anger and grief, the Grossmayers learned about the restorative justice paradigm and sought to use it for Connor's sentencing because they came to believe that it's what their daughter would have wanted. In a restorative justice approach, typically a facilitator meets separately with the accused and with the the victim. And if both are willing to meet face-to-face without animosity, and the offender is deemed willing and able to complete restitution in some way, then the case shifts out of the adversarial legal system and into a parallel restorative justice process. All parties, the offender, the victim, the facilitator, and law enforcement come together in a forum sometimes known as a restorative community conference. Each person speaks, one at a time, without interruption, about the crime, its effects, how it's affected them personally, and the participants come to a consensus about how to repair the harm done or what to do in response to the crime. Now, of course, you can't repair the harm done in the case of murder. And the Grossmayer's case was featured in the Times because it's highly unusual for restorative justice to be attempted in the case of murder. As a restorative justice advocate said in the story, we do burglaries, robberies, not gun charges, homicides, or rape. In the normal punitive justice paradigm, Connor would likely have received 40 or more years in prison for something he did however incredibly serious, as a 19-year-old, so that he would be 60 years or older upon his release. Instead, instead, he received 20 years plus probation. The prosecutor said, frankly, that if Connor gets out, of, gets out in 20 years and kills his next girlfriend, I've screwed up terribly. So I hope I'm right. The restorative justice advocate said, I'm not worried about him getting out in 20 years at all. We got to look more deeply at the root of where his behavior came from than we would if we'd gone to a trial route. The anger issues in the family, exploring the drama in their relationship, the whole conglomeration of factors that led to that moment. There's no explaining what happened. There was just much more nuanced conversation around it, which can give everyone more confidence that Connor will never do this again. And the Grossmayers got answers to questions that would have been difficult to impossible to get in a trial. And they got to have him hear their story and to hear from him details about what, how, how the crime came to be committed that they probably would never have gotten in a trial. The larger point is that the possibility of repealing the death penalty in Maryland says to me, that another world is possible. And nonviolent activism, restorative justice, and many different alternative approaches that are out there are part of what makes me think that another world is possible. We don't have to accept that the current state of the world is just the way it is. 
Methods of transforming people in conflict through nonviolent activism and restorative justice show me that we can create a world that is more just, more free, more peaceful. In 2006, after a tragic shooting in an Amish courthouse, an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania, the family members of the victims went immediately to comfort the family of the assassin. They sought not to condone his egregious transgression, but instead of seeking revenge, they sought to restore right relationship, that something terrible had gone awry, and they wanted to stop the cycle of violence, to stop something like that from ever happening again. But the, and most, a lot of people couldn't understand that. But where that comes from is that the Amish, as a, as a people, as a community, have a deep commitment to practicing forgiveness. And like any other practice, from the piano to basketball, as, we've, as you've heard me say before, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. And it was that practice that the Amish have of forgiveness in little things to big things that led them reflexively to go immediately to the family member of the assassin to try to stop something like this from ever happening again, to stop the cycle of violence. So another world is possible, but it involves practicing things like nonviolent activism, putting people and money into them, practicing restorative justice so that we get better at it, so that the only thing we're practicing is not just violence as the solution for problems. And when I say that another world is possible, I don't mean hope in the next world or an afterlife. I mean the hard hope of transforming our world, our life on this one earth. Imagine. As St. John said, imagine. Imagine that another world is possible.